Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about training in thousand ton ankle weights and opening the six inner gates to run circles around the more liberal podcasts. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I have uh, one of our favorites, uh, Young Neocon, to talk about a Citations Needed episode that was recently released. How you doing? Uh, hi. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh... <laughs> So, yeah, Citations Needed recently did an episode about uh, degrowth, and as soon as I finished listening to it, I immediately thought of talking to you. Um, what, what did you think of it? Of the episode? Well, uh, basically, it's like, as far as it went, like, I actually uh, agreed pa- basically with everything Kickle said, mm-hmm. uh, and based on their timelines, I was actually surprisingly uh, pleased with the hosts as well but uh they still at various points just you know because i'm an asshole i just at various points got annoyed at things they said yeah uh, <laughs> but concerning among other things like measuring gdp and interpersonal com- utility comparisons uh social welfare issues their branding about of the term ecofascism, uh and a couple other things but i mean but other than that it's just mostly that you know there's only so much depth you can go into on a podcast like that. And I will say, I tweeted about this, though. One thing I did like was I stared the only podcast or anything I've seen, like, uh, say that that 100 companies produce 71% of emissions claim is um, horseshit. They did, like, an addendum at the end of it. Uh, and I appreciated that because everybody cites that and nobody knows where it's actually from. So they actually read the Carbon Majors report and realized it didn't say what people – said it does so i actually appreciated that but other than that, don't you also have like another objection to it though where it like it sort of is a individualistic explanation of things uh no okay so it's a couple things um the problem with it is with the hundred companies produce 71 percent of emissions claim is that it doesn't it accounts like okay so if i drive in a car and put gas in the car and do and emit carbon with it it Uh describes the CO2 that I admitted to the company that produced the oil, right? Uh-huh. Now, that's a completely different way of thinking about emissions than the way anybody thinks about them, especially because it misleadingly suggests that the cause there is like the company, but the company is responding to a service. I mean, we know that, like, you know, it's not capitalism isn't like, you know, demand driven, but it would also be absurd to say that, like, they're just producing oil for fun, right? Right. Using oil for profit, and because I think it'd be more accurate to say it's the auto company because they're the ones that bought up all the trolley lines and dismantled them to make us well, <laughs> use cars. Well, ultimately, and I mean, but it's also just like the entire system, right? I mean, right. Yeah. Like, like when you look, and that's the other thing is that the one takeaway people get from the hundred com- companies slogan is that they say, "Oh, we can just nationalize all these companies, dismantle them." But most of them are already state-owned. Only the American and Canadian ones are basically private. And then even those ones receive subsidies that are more than the, the size of their profits and their uh, costs. So they, mm-hmm. it's just like, let alone their externalities. Uh, and then when you add in all the other benefits they get, all the regulations, the protectionism, the land grants, the credit grants, the, the, the export supports, all these things. It's, I mean – how else does the uh, – well, that and, like, you know, mass piles of 
venture capital and stuff and whatever, but how else does the shale oil industry survive despite it not turning a profit a single year since it's been around? It's posted like a $500 billion loss or something. Don't, I, I got to look that up. Don't, don't quote me on that one. But, uh, but, uh, they, I'm quoting you on that right product. now. Oh, no. <laughs> but, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, they just, they just kept losing money, which is typical for oil in its beginning years, but usually it eventually turns some kind of profit. With shale, they just don't. Well, yeah, and then so all these oil companies, you know, overproduce. And the thing is, is that a substantial number of oil companies already don't operate at a profit. So, <clears throat> like, uh, like on the list of the, in the Carbon Majors report, some of these things are like the DPRK Coal Ministry, mm-hmm. and they li- list uh, the the head of the DPRK Coal Ministry as its CEO. I mean, that's I mean, there's an anarchist critique you can make of the state and corporations as being similar or the same but that's not what their takeaway was <laughs> and yeah. uh, and also just like all these other, like you know i see a lot of people cite it who if you were to a lot of people who you like if you said something critical about china or russia or venezuela or iran's oil industry they would say like oh here's this propaganda but then they cite this report and then literally all those companies are listed in its top <laughs> uh top like 50 or top 20 of it so it's just like and like yeah even citations needed did that at one point they you know they have that statistic cited in the episode but they also at one point said well venezuela is a poor country what do you expect them to do (laughs) exactly right so it's just funny i mean it's all it's all on the list and like i don't think people really get this like it's just like for example the the state-owned um enterprises in, in china that produce their coal their min- mineral resources, their land resources, their oil, their uh, uh, gas, and so on. Not only are these like state-owned and an oligopoly and subsidized and operating at a loss, they do so precisely to support capital accumulation. And on top of that, uh, they're partially responsible for why China's energy system is so coal and carbon-intensive even given its level of development, like usually at that average GDP per capita, uh, coal and uh, carbon intensity start to uh, fall. Uh, absolute doesn't fall, but the, re- the relative falls. But for them, it doesn't, right? And part of that is that because, like, you know, they get their coal for whatever it is, 20% what they would otherwise. So 20% off of what they would otherwise or whatever. So it's just funny to me that. You know, their people's first response is to nationalize it should be for profit over people or whatever. But the irony is, is that as long as it's slotted into the general system, it doesn't matter even if that industry is technically a loss without these massive supports, like because it's there to support the profits of the rest of the system. So that's why states have been supporting it for, you know, 200 years. So, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, mean, yeah. if a state is trying to like use the, least amount of forced labor they can to generate energy then fossil fuels just make sense because they have a high energy return on investment which it basically equates to the amount of energy i.e labor that you have to put into it to get it out of the ground and make it available to burn well they might use uh well because first of all because actually china's energy industry is actually relatively labor intensive Mm. so so it's like i don't know how to put it's a a very capitalized and capital intensive sector but it's uh labor intensive relative to other coal and 
oil companies in the rest of the world, right? Yeah. Uh, but also, like, even if they reduce the amount of labor used in um, fossil fuels, which is presumably what, you know, all, all these state companies and the American companies want to do, uh, although don't tell – I mean, the Saudis, I guess, don't uh, – the Saudi government hasn't learned that lesson. But uh, <laughs> the, it's to support the usage of forced labor elsewhere, right? Right. It's a, it's a massive subsidy to the industry and the economy at the cost the of – military. And what? And of course, they need that for their military, but uh, yeah. and vice versa. But at the cost of the environment, the common good, public funds, so on. I mean, so it's really kind of just a yeah. But anyway, this is uh, I, as far as I know. Probably, if I didn't frame it this way, the people from the citations needed podcast would probably agree with this. So it's yeah. you know, not <laughs> Not necessarily pertinent to that, but it is. It is just interesting. Anyway, that's why I don't like the Carbon Majors report, and I was glad that they like, they criticized it. <laughs> uh, okay, so I I actually like outlined the entire uh, podcast episode, and I just have a couple of comments. Um, the first half of it or so, uh, all good. I don't have any really real objections to it. Uh, the first one is, um. They relate uh, climate change denial to uh, the way that conservatives are talking about COVID um, and growthism to climate change denial. Uh, and they liken that to trying to negotiate with the virus and stuff. And they, they call it irrational. But I think that's kind of a weird move because they've had entire episodes on how the media turns active decisions into passive ones by calling them mistakes or irrational or whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. they're doing it here with business supposedly like irrationally calling for reopening the economy when it's like it's not irrational and they just it's completely rational they just don't give a shit about the people that are going to die (laughs) it's irrational from the perspective of social welfare but it's not irrational from the perspective of profit or social control yeah yeah and but see okay that's and that's funny because that was like uh, this tension about how to adjudicate social welfare is actually at the heart of the gdp question one of the larger problems with GDP, and uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, I sent that um, article on by in Cosmonaut Mag on degrowth. Yeah, I really like that one. Yeah, and what's funny is that as a critique of degrowth, it's horse, it's bad, it's not good because <laughs> it literally it literally says degrowth shouldn't be this and should be this, and then the thing it says it should be is the thing it already is. Right? <laughs> So it's, it's my favorite type of critique. <laughs> right. So it's clear they haven't actually read uh, the degrowth works because they, they said, oh, it shouldn't be about this. It should be about you stopping using GDP as a metric and finding better metrics of human welfare and the environment and so on. And it's like, yes, that's what degrowth proposed. But <laughs> as a critique of accounting mechanisms, it's actually a pretty good piece. And it discusses how there's several issues with counting mechanisms and the fact is that GDP is a metric, you know, it's a transactional metric. It measures the volume in money of total number of transactions in an economy, which means it doesn't, uh, except implicitly, perhaps, measure non-economic transactions, non-monetary right. ones. Um, and so if a, co- if a cost is monetized, it's counted, and if a benefit is not monetized, it isn't. Uh-huh. And so, so GDP can go up even as welfare goes down, say, if something like care labor becomes commodified. So that's one thing. The next thing is that, you know, to be for GDP to be meaningful, it has to be uh, subjected to many different deflators and metrics, 
such as inflation, so comparing it to a price level or to basket of goods or to an international currency or to a numerator like gold. But then you start to get into other issues because the basket of currency is not of, of commodities is not the same across every country. Rice is a staple in one country. Wheat is a staple in another. Right? And so then you get into another issue. Even within one country, there's not uh, equivalents across the different groups. So like what might be inflationary price rise for someone who makes $50,000 a year, if they're already buying $100 steaks, it's not going to be a price rise for relative to the rich person consuming it. So then you need to include yeah, all the other I've run into that problem. Like when I, if I try to compare prices between places or times, I try to specifically cite it as like, if you made minimum wage at this period, then it would cost this. If you made the average income during this period, it would cost this. Um, yeah, the, it's yeah, the only really way complicated. To, the only way to, I think the only way to reliably do it is if you use multiple metrics at a time. Like, so you use different baskets of good comparisons. So it's like, okay, here's the nominal comparison. Here's the PPP comparison. Here's the adjusted PPP comparison. I use hours. So if you make uh, minimum yeah. wage, then it would be this many hours, and then you can convert that number of hours into the minimum wage at a different time or in a different country. Right. But you also need to compare it to the basket of goods it can consume, and then that's where this starts to go. And the point, the point is that a lot of these depend on things like behavioral assumptions, like people, like you know, wealth effects and income effects that are somewhat arbitrary because they need to be inferred from the data itself. So you're it's, uh, often kind of a circular. Uh, which is fine as a heuristic, but once you reify it as this metric to be, you know, once a target becomes a metric, sorry, once a metric becomes a target, it ceases to function as a metric. Right. right. Yeah, so that's like with GDP. And then the other, so that's another one. And then as at the heart of that, though, are things like changes in quality, technology, and utility, which again, this Cosmonaut article like uh, addresses, which is that, Something can go down in price or up in price, but have the same utility or get higher in quality. Um, people's tastes change, people's notions of welfare change, and so on, and technology changes. So it's very hard to compare these things across time. I mean, we can, but we have to, as I say, I think we have to use you know many different metrics, output, hours worked, basket of commodities, quality. That's the only way we can get a holistic view. And if you want to do this, I mean, and then, so that's like a big issue. And then that raises the questions of how do you adjudicate social welfare? How do you adjudicate people's preferences? How do you maximize that? And you know, that's a famously vexed problem in economics. And there's all these different impossibility theorems about aggregating preferences into a social welfare function. Right. And and that brings me to this other point though, which is that uh oh wait, okay, but anyway, they mentioned Brunei's gross national happiness, and they said that that was hippy dippy. And I mean, I, I kind of agree in some sense, but, and I think that to survey, but I don't think necessarily, I mean, if you're going to be a state conducting, you know, panopticon, sur panopticonic surveys, I mean, asking people how happy they are, isn't that a bad of an idea? I mean, during Cybersyn, they had this idea that they were going to install a, a little meter when everybody's home, and then you turn it up if you're happy, you turn it down if you're sad, and then it, they would aggregate it in real time so that there would just be like, an aggregate of the country's entire happiness at any given moment. If I were sad, I would be like too depressed to get up and turn the meter though. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be like <laughs> on your, it's supposed to be like on your couch while you're watching TV. So you can do it while you watch uh, announcements on the TV. I'm not even kidding. That was like the idea. <laughs> wow. You'd have it on your remote. You'd have it on your remote. Yeah. 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 So you could be like, 
so the president would come make an, uh, an announcement, you know, Allende would make an announcement, and if you liked it, you'd turn it up. And if you didn't, you turn it down. That was like everyone's a the- Nielsen family. <laughs> <laughs> actually, though, right? <laughs> so that's that's one thing. And then so I included in the links and stuff a lot of stuff on measuring happiness and the problems with that, and you know that kind of thing. But they said one thing. One of them, the host said, "Is I don't care if people are happy. I just want people to be educated, healthy, and have food." Right? And I get that sentiment, but that to me raises a whole host of problems because. What they're doing when they say that is instead of them like they're still imposing from, their norms onto exactly, other people. Yeah, exactly. So instead of learning from the GDP issue that you can't really aggregate welfare in a, at least at the very least in a single way, let alone you know just one overall amazing metric, like instead of learning from that that you need to have diverse set of multiple metrics or you know maybe like not treat people's welfare as a you know or as a status project of metrical adjustment at all i mean that's my yeah <laughs> uh, but instead of taking that lesson from it they say okay actually i know better and, and my preference is you know better than theirs and as i, I think it's fine if everyone's a dumbass personally well <laughs> i i mean it's just as the big pro however galaxy for neoclassical economists are they they well, actually, I don't think people really like the typical social dem can't actually really like answer their objection that like you can't like centrally plan what people's welfare is for them, right? So like, yeah, you can guess that education and happiness like health will make them better, but I mean like that's like the obvious cases. But there's always going to be the limit cases where that's not true, and there's always going to be you know uh, fine grained aspects to that, and. You know, there are some people who I think really would just, you know, rather just, I don't know, fuck around, like smoke cigarettes, eat unhealthy or whatever. And like, I don't frankly care. Yeah, go for do it. That. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, so it's like, like, I, I, I would like, I would like people to be healthy and what, do whatever they want. Right. But like, assuming that they have the choice to, which I agree, everybody should be enabled to do. Right. Uh, I don't really care after that point if they're not really hurting anyone. Like. As long as, like, if any time they're like, oh, I do want to quit and become healthy and go back to school, they can't, right? So it's like, that's, but that's a, you know, a, some would call that like a capabilities approach, but I'm not a liberal, so I won't call it that. But uh, anyway, so I just, that to me got a lot of, to a heart of the issue here with both GDP and their critique of it. Anyway, it's just, yeah, anyway. Yeah, one of the big things for me, and this was in the Cosmonaut article as well, is like, uh, they talk about, you know, changing the metrics and in, to me, it's like if we're in the position to change the metrics and keep it that way, then we have enough power to like do something that's better than just changing metrics. So why would we want to do that? Yeah, and that's the problem with all technocratic uh, solutions like that. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, I always go back to the big brain, but you know, Matt Brunick's thing about how we should have an algorithm that chooses who to hire and fire for a company. <laughs> Because it would be better for the workers. But then yeah. the question is, who writes the algorithm? And he's like, well, it'll be written with the consultation of the workers in the union. It's like, well, if the workers in the union are powerful enough to write the algorithm, why don't they – they're also powerful enough to get rid of the boss entirely. So like <laughs> what, the, the situation where it would be possible or feasible or desirable is also the situation where it's unnecessary. So small aside, now that we're talking about Matty, uh, his, his post today <laughs> – 
send send thousands of people door to door to rip people's gas stoves out and replace them with induction. <laughs> I I don't even get like why he wants that. He thinks that <laughs> it's well. There's a there's an article that came out like a couple days ago that said uh, gas stoves produce like huge amounts of indoor pollutants, like way more than previously thought or something like that. So now his mm-hmm. big thing is like, oh, we need to save everyone from themselves by forcing them to use a electric stove. But the, uh, <laughs> the but the electric stove just doesn't. It just moves the pollutants elsewhere. Yeah. Yep. And it's not like they go away. Like, uh, and indoor concentrations of CO two and other things are rising either way. Yep. But uh. Like what? So what? It, uh, yeah, I suppose he wants everyone to have an electric heating system too. And so well, yes. we're gonna go. We're gonna go to uh, like, yeah. Well, uh, I'm just imagining the Matt Brunig fantasy is like, uh, go to every single like rural area in the world, and you build a massive nuclear power plant and power <laughs> generation center, maybe a dam or two, and every single person has electric heating and a stove and like a high speed train. It goes like <laughs> everyone has know, their own high speed train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, and nobody actually wants any of these things, but like, you know, like he, he knows better for people, but uh, right. Or yeah, I don't know. Some of people are just like, wait a minute. I, the whole point with me moving here was to get away from all this, but anyway, uh, <laughs> wild, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, but that ties into this, not only because of the, social welfare calculation stuff, but uh, because of this ideology of growthism that even the left shares in many ways. Yeah. Which is, you know, something that when Hickel comes on, he basically, say, you know, says this, like, they t- I mean, they t- as you see here, as you say here, they talk about how the whole idea of assessing national wealth was always a social control project going back to colonial Ireland to create a nation of an inventory of nation's wealth to loot, and then uh, they have yeah the happiness meter dumbass. Which I th- and then- <laughs> I think that's like a I think that's a really like um, finicky distinction like national wealth accounting because like cadastral surveys have existed for thousands of fucking years. They're always state projects, and they're always to you know take an account of the stuff that they can steal from people. You know, mm-hmm. of so, course. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, account accounting of what people can the state can steal from people is like why taxes and and uh, last names <laughs> and and credit and, and grain agriculture exist in the first place. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but that's a longer conversation. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I get you know, but there is a point that the my, my rise of modern statistics. I mean, it's in the name state is yeah does go back to like you know census. Uh, and political, uh, political economic accounting, and you know, from the 1700s on, these like state and industrial projects. So you had like uh, surveyors of the population. You had the rise of you know new methods of social control. You had the rise of criminology. You got the skull measurers. You had industrial <laughs> chemists that used it, and like all these guys, you know, to get you had scientific management projects. Yeah, exactly. All of this came together at the same time. They're like, oh wow, this same tool allows us to. Uh, repress the colonial populations uh, and uh, figure out the best way to uh, cook a loaf of bread or bake a loaf of bread. 
like, R.I.P. My uh, old tweet about how statistics are statist, and if you use them, you're an oppressor. <laughs> Got I lost mean, in my mass delete. <laughs> oh no! I mean, it's like, I mean, there. That's. I mean, there is actually. That's true, though. There is actually a really deep connection between the rise of statistics and the rise of the modern state. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, people don't. All of my uh, joke tweets are only like sixty percent a joke. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. That's the best kind. But yeah. So um, to, speaking of which, there's another weird thing uh, from the citation citations needed episode where they are talking about um, how do we reduce energy and material use without it being disastrous. Um, so they say shorten the working week and raise wages. And then they, they talk about productivity gains, which are they have the exact same issues as GDP. But for some reason, they they are taking that seriously as well, because productivity is just a measure of like income per unit capital, like per unit investment. Well, well, I mean, there are ways of measuring productivity that don't depend on income, but they are a measure of physical output to physical input and hours worked. And then you have but, all the uh, problems of baskets of goods for exactly. the output. Yeah. And and for services, it doesn't really make sense because the output is about is a quality function. So then you have to regress quality against hours worked, and then you get into a whole other thing. Uh, well, I think you need to take economics because a service is actually a, a good that's consumed immediately. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, it sounds like my last marriage, but um, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So so yeah, then Hickel comes on, talks about capitalism and growth and growthism, and how I mean this this point when a, a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be a metric. So mm-hmm. GDP was solely to be a metric during. World War Two, wartime, you know, world, and um, uh, oh my God, what's how am I blanking on his name? So famous, Kuznets, no Kuznets. Oh, Kuznets, okay. Kuznets curve, uh, you know, relating something like you know the idea is that uh, inequality or energy use rise at the early stages of growth, but then as a country gets rich, inequality and um, you know, carbon usage or something fall, and uh. You know, there's the there's the Cousins curve and then the environmental Cousins curve named after. And, and the of course the problem with that is that when he was theorizing that it was during this exceptional period, namely post-war uh, America and Europe, when capitalism was uh, you know all this massive capital and wealth had been destroyed, mass taxation, so there was high inequality, high growth. So it looked like the stuff was falling, but then you know it rose again, right, with the rest of the world, and one of the things that actually ties a lot of this together was the I included in the file dump is this uh, Milanovic global inequality. So he theorizes this stuff too because you know, somehow this all gets related. But uh, uh, yeah, so anyway, starts as this metric to assess wartime assets so they can better mobilize resources for the war. Kuznets says before Congress, don't let this become basically – back then GNP, uh, don't let gross national product become a – uh, metric for everything. It doesn't measure utility, technology, quality, or distribution. And then, but with rise of Bretton Woods and modern capitalism, corporatism, financialization, you know, GDP has become the sole metric by which states measure their success in almost every country, regardless of their nominal affiliation and their parties. And, uh, like, you know, so I mean, Parallel to this, you have this changes of the central bank when the central bank was originally supposed to facilitate 
the operations of the government and keep unemployment low. And then now they all have a dual mandate of maintaining the price level, keeping inflation low, or dual or several mandate, keeping inflation low, keeping unemployment low, keeping uh, currency and price level stable, even though these you know are contradictory goals. Um, and then, uh, and I don't, I don't think central banks can control inflation. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> well, they can, they can, they can fiddle with it, but uh, it's it's all. Uh, all the ways they can supposedly do it are based on magical thinking where, you know, one one thing leads to – it's like a giant Rube Goldberg machine, basically. Well, yeah, and the economy is kind of a Rube Goldberg machine. But capitalism, they're – you know, capitalism and the state have always inherently had some sort of tendency towards growth, which uh, – which, but in different forms, uh, which I don't think necessarily they talked about that much, but uh, – but now it's specifically focalized, focalized around GDP because, and sort of GDP represents sort of the, the pinnacle of this tendency of reification, surveying, social control, standardization, metricalization, financialization, the concern for growth and resources and territory and accumulation that have been at the heart of state and capitalist projects for quite some time mm-hmm. in varying degrees. And... So yeah, so I mean, um, yeah, I would yeah. argue that I would argue that GDP is like, from the perspective of state, it is a, a rational measure. It may not be like the ideal way to measure it, but it's basically a measure of state control over society, because the more that is, you know, part of market transactions, the more is part of the control by states. Well, it's interesting because. Even with GDP, though, there are political state disputes. So in the 70s during that period, uh, Nixon had them create what is now called like a core inflation, which is mm-hmm. basically the change in the nominal price level minus things like oil and other variable goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a way to say like, oh, look, like um, prices aren't rising. There's no inflation. <laughs> <laughs> And people use that metric now. They say talk about core inflation, which of course is the, basically the nominal part of the GDP change, minus oh, oh, uh, energy and a few other things. Um, but yeah, is that like shadow stats? Uh, what do you mean? Oh, there's a there's a what site is- called uh, Shadow Shadow Government Statistics that has like all these alternate measures of inflation and money supply and stuff. Oh, interesting. That sounds cool. It is cool. Uh, I also do, I've never looked too close at it to see if it's bullshit or not. Because I, mm-hmm. I think it's like the people that run it are the types of people that think we need to be back on the gold standard because fiat money is fake. Yeah, and debt and all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, it's like – so yeah, the state and capitalism have always been these growth-driven projects. The state needs constant growth for various reasons. I mean like uh, primarily to keep itself funded because – it's basically a Ponzi scheme, and I don't mean that in like a derogatory way. I'm just saying that the funding structure of states since time immemorial has been a Ponzi scheme, in that the next generation has to pay for the last. So that's that's like a continually true thing, um, and that states that don't expand ultimately die off because they get absorbed by the states that do expand. So there's always been a drive for expansion in the state system. Uh, of, of land, of population, of territory, of, of money, of, of resources, and so on. I mean, the dictate of states is they want to control as much land, people, 
resources, etc., power, military, whatever, technology as possible, but to have its population be as like socially controlled and poor and miserated as possible. Uh-huh. Uh, and by the way, I just wanted a side point. When people talk about Malthusianism and Neo-Malthusianism, I just want to say Malthus himself, Neo-Malthusianism is different than Malthusianism. So, but Malthus himself did not think population growth was bad. No, his position was actually even more sinister than that. He thought population growth was the source of wealth, but only if it's coupled with keeping people poor. Yeah, so, that was. I think that was a pretty common sentiment in his day. Yeah, and but and he. That like, was like what every political economist at the time thought. <laughs> well, um, Ricardo the, uh, and Smith and stuff didn't agree with that per se, but um, Smith was a small fry at his time. Sure, but but yeah, Malthus, yeah, he, like. So, uh, the, the first book on political economy, which was by Sir James Stewart, I haven't read the whole Ooh. thing because it's like really fucking hard to read, and I'm also I'm also bad at reading anything that isn't written in like vulgar English. But um, <laughs> like ha- half of the first book is just about how how to control birth rates. There you go. I yeah. mean, there. So the thing, and so like that's like uh, been a concern. So Malthus is warnings about population. Where because he wanted population growth, high population growth, but to have everybody be poor and uh, socially controlled, and therefore they could be milked for as much exploitation as possible. Because um, oh, there's, there's also uh, there's also uh, Jeremy Bentham, who like most people know, because was he the guy that created like the idea of utility? I can't remember. But he was one of the first utilitarians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he also wanted he also coined the term panopticon because he wanted yes. to build prisons that had a guard tower in the center of a circular prison where people think they're being watched all the time and the reason that he wanted to do that was so that he could put poor people in there and control their birth rates and the amount of food they eat and shit like that and force them to yeah. labor all the time and also ironically enough that was considered a progressive project at the time yeah <laughs> because the idea was like oh we can help them because they can't help themselves was the idea yeah they they all thought that that uh, scarcity made people happy because it it whipped the indolent peasants into industry yeah. and well, it, just it look at France they they are living under scarcity and their peasants are very industrious which makes them happy. But there's a contradiction here, right? Because if they don't, if everybody's working, so this is the Protestant ethic. If everybody's working hard and accumulating, there's no one there to consume and realize the economy, so it has a collapse. So then you have someone like um, uh, say uh, Mandeville come along and he says. No, vice is good because it actually keeps the economy going. So how do they reconcile these? In Malthus's reconciliation, he combines them both. He says, no, no, no. Vice is good and excess and consumption are good when the aristocrats do it. But the, <laughs> and the rich people and the landowners do it. But it's bad when the poor do it. So all the poor should live suffering lives of hard work where they just accumulate – and then all the rich people should just enjoy all their vices, and this is the best way to grow a society. Yeah, and, uh, it is one way. It's, I mean, it's one way to resolve a contradiction, but it's uh, not a particularly pleasant one. Uh, um, but again, this all goes back to these things about distribution and differing measures of utility, and so on. I mean, Bentham, for example, would, despite his things for utilitarianism, Bentham would more or less agree that like he doesn't care if people are happy as long as they're working hard and educated and healthy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just like, just want to point that out. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
like, uh, and this goes back, you know, all these things where, yeah, like, uh, yeah, Bas- basically, like, there's distributional concerns, utility concerns, and uh, social control concerns that are all melded into this metric GDP, which is used as the sole justification for a society's progress. And really all it's measuring is the degree of commodification, the level of transactions, and then whatever. And it implicit, I mean, so they say something in the podcast that I actually thought was wrong, where they said that it had no relation to things like happiness, poverty, inequality, and so on. That's like not true. There is a statistical relationship between that, right? I mean, there is, there's not really a way around that. But the point is, is that that it's not a very it's a it's a lot of noise to get that signal. I think is the better way to to point it out. Yeah. So, in the literature things studies stuff I include, I include all these links to multi-dimensional uh, notions of poverty, to happiness studies, to energy use studies, and so basically what they find is that at very low levels of income per capita for a company country. GDP per capita, very low levels of income, GDP per capita, happiness, satisfaction, um, uh, life expectancy, poverty reduction, um, and energy use are all positively correlated. And they rise, you know, they all go together. Then it very quickly curves to the right, at quickly by which I mean it's like once you get to around, for some, it varies, but around $20,000, 10 to $20,000 a year per capita. All of a sudden, the relationship between um, growth and happiness, growth and well-being, growth and life outcomes, uh, growth and equality, growth and poverty, it starts to temper at varying rates. And similarly, at a certain level of it, uh, energy use and well-being start to uncouple. So that further gains in energy use, further gains in income start to uh, slow and eventually basically have little or very small positive effect on poverty reduction, well-being, and so on. Um, I mean, that's the same with just income too, right? Like once you get to around $75,000 a year. Well, that's within a country. So within, yeah. so within that, the same, the same uh, relationships which hold in aggregate across countries also hold within countries at varying levels. Uh-huh. So, so the statistic for, I mean, the, I, I include in the, if we post that stuff, a different uh, link. So there's the Measuring Happiness book discusses, and there's a lot of problems with this happiness literature. So he, the book's actually really critical of this supposed decline of the Easterlin paradox, as it's called, where income and happiness stopped, ceased to correlate. But that's for another okay. day. That's enough for another day. <laughs> but the Smill, for example, includes stuff about the energy and well-being stuff and whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so this same relationship which holds across countries between like ten and twenty thousand dollars a year per capita, between growth and uh, poverty, inequality, uh, happiness, satisfaction, life outcomes, and energy use, you know, it starts to whatever. It holds within countries too. So in the United States, um, up to about seventy-eight thousand dollars a year, according to one study. I mean, again, a lot of problems here. That it says that uh, further gains in money no longer increase happiness. The only thing that increases happiness is if you have more money than the people in your relevant peer group above that level. So, the it's like a it's like a self same recurring relationship both within and between countries that there's a slope, a area where 
growth measured in GDP and income measured in this normal way is correlated with happiness, life satisfaction, poverty reduction, inequality, energy use, etc. And then there's a point where the curve rapidly switches and then becomes uh, much lower. Um, and then it only relative levels start to matter at that point. Again, this is disputed for each of these in different ways, but that's the general point. Now, I, I just think that like um, Hickel touched on this, like you know about how it didn't. But the way he said it was that it had no relationship. I just I was being I pedantically really didn't like that because it's like <laughs> there is a there is a statistical relationship, but it's just it's an arbitrary one. So so it's uh, it's like. Um, if you couple together a set of, okay, you know it's like a, it's like with like a IQ tests where it's like if you define hundred if you if you like define intelligence as people who do well on X Y and Z questions and then put all those questions together and then test people on it and then you're like that means intelligence you know it's like a it's a it's a uh, it's a circular exercise right it's, right um, it's fitting the, the question. Right, yeah, it's fitting the tar the metric to the desired outcome rather than the other way around. So that is a valid critique. But um, and and the other thing we could say is that the reason GDP correlates with these things and then ceases to is because of like, well, the way Milanovic puts it is that uh, above, like you need a certain level of income to have a certain level of inequality, and in order to do that, you actually need a certain level of wealth and production so i think it's like uh one way to think about it is that in the early stages of quote-unquote development in order to expand the national wealth or whatever the capitalists actually do have to expand output somewhat and mm -hmm. gain efficiency and so on uh which is why back in you know smith's day right that's what they, i mean there's a lot of whatever but uh, <laughs> they, uh they, that's what they would claim but then once the surplus is high enough the literal physical and social whatever surplus is high enough now it can just be like spread to any number of things. So now it's uh, right. So I think there's a, but but that was that what I just said was always the um, dictum of people who believed in sort of industrial led development. But then the rise of like you know what they call like service led development in the world, uh, whereby countries have grown but haven't gone through this industrialization phase with manufacturers, but instead through services and so on, like uh, that starts to complicate that a little bit. But one can argue that because we live in a global system, it's actually one economy in the first place. So anyway, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a difficult argument. <laughs> I mean, it's there's a lot of sides to it. Uh, I just think, yeah, the, point is is that gdp is a metric by which by measuring these transactions and, and degrees of commodification subject to a deflator um does capture some degree of economic activity and therefore of useful things as determined by either people themselves or other people but it only does so up to a point and then it ceases to do so uh after that and when it's pursued as a target for its own sake it is inimical to the uh, advancement in these other areas. So that's like, uh, I think, the point. I mean, but yeah, I mean, as, but the, what the economists will say is, well, we don't have any other choices or whatever. But, and from a capitalist perspective or state perspective, that might actually be true. But 
not from the not from our perspective that's not true i choose not to choose (laughs) (laughs) well right well that actually creates an economic problem but uh, the dual preference structure and uh contradictory meta preferences but again for another day yeah you'll have to uh you should send me some stuff on that because i haven't actually heard of that i'm interested in i actually did think i included uh Oh, okay. It must be in the uh, the second half of the links. So it's, I'll uh, read through those then. And the file dump, there's uh, this, I think I included a book, or maybe didn't, maybe I didn't. I thought I included a book by Harold Kincaid called Preference, Choice, Value, and Welfare. And I think I included the Philosophy of Economics Handbook. But that stuff, kind of stuff is talked about there. But again, it's very far off, very far off the subject matter. I just thought it was cool stuff to include. One thing, since we were we were just talking about GDP, one one thing I thought was interesting was uh, when they summarize Hickel's uh, points about GDP, they say GDP is the same whether it's spent on dialysis machines or slot machines, and I know it's that's supposed to be like whether it's spent on something that is good and helps people or is bad, and you know uh, a vice or whatever, but like. Dialysis. A lot of people having to use dialysis machines is kind of a sign of, like, a bad sign of diseases of class. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, so I just yeah. thought it was an interesting choice. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think. I mean, but I think they're just you know, it's like they're they're thinking of like given a, a set of problems that we have, here's the solutions. But like, right? Yeah, I'm not. Is- I'm not like knocking them for it. I just thought it was like an interesting, like I, I guess Freudian slip. Well, sort of I think it's funny because there is like as you, you could take yeah as you're saying you could take out this like wider structural viewpoint where it was like if we lived in a society where everybody was healthy and then could just like gamble all the time I mean it wouldn't be a utopia but it would be a better society than the one in which uh, <laughs> some people are unhealthy and other people are losing all their money or something you know what I mean yeah so that is that I mean, but that's the problem I think the social dem kind of worldview. Going back to this, I don't care if people are happy. I care if they have education and healthcare. Is that it? Very narrowly, like substitutes the person's concerns, however valid they may be, for the population as a whole. It right. Except accepts the world's like fundamental parameters as they exist now as necessary. However, then like proposes super changes within that. But then, as we talked about earlier, all the changes that they would institute would require the kind of power to overthrow that system in the first place. So yeah. why don't they just take up the next step and uh, advocate like uh, total overthrow? And it's just like uh, that's always going to be the problem at the heart of these progressivist visions like that. Um, for a very far off example, but there's this paper I really like called "Against the Empire" about like you know transhumanist and space colonization futures or whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically, what it, what it points out is that if you if we actually had the level of technology and sustainability and whatever to achieve something like interstellar migration, it would largely obviate the reasons why people would want to do that in the first place. So it's like if you could somehow have enough resources and sustainability to colonize Mars, it would mean that your planet Earth was biosphere was like good enough that we wouldn't need to. Right. <laughs> so so it's like a subtle contradiction of these kinds of uh, set so what, aside. What was the reason the cosmists wanted to go into space? Uh, the the cosmos were a really funny bunch. I mean, for them, uh, 
for them, it was much more of this, like, uh, for the, because exploration and expansion and knowledge are good for their own sake. And immortality, and like, uh, and scarcity is always bad and a form of domination. So it's like, uh, if we're immortal and we can move through space, then we've literally, tr like, we've transcended the limitations of space and time. So there's no more possibility of tyranny at all. And you can just float through the universe pursuing. Uh, truth, justice, and freedom, kind of. I mean, it's, it's that's it's funny. Silly. I wrote a very similar point in my, uh, I think, the last post scarcity anarchism zine that I wrote. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and I think there, and there's this thing about like, uh, with like limitless migratory possibilities, it's very hard to control a population. And mm -hmm. if people are, if people are immortal, I mean, you can still probably, you can still shoot them and stuff, but like they're gonna, you know, another way to very, very hard to control a population. So they, there is a truth to it. And they, you know, the Cosmos were a diverse group. They had a, they had like weird, um, orthodox religious fundamentalists, like Slavic nationalists, anarchists, communists. They had, hmm. they were a very diverse group of people, uh, that were together. And I, I like them more for like their progressive view of like this, like a, like to the idea that they didn't have to cede like science and, and technology and stuff to like the, weird stem lord and capitalists and so on like uh, and i like them because they were early pioneers of doing models that integrated social ecological and technological variables into one sort of dynamic systems analysis uh without sort of preference to any one of them uh that was really cool uh, and I also think they were cool because they were, you know, a lot of them were anarchists, and they, but they participated nonetheless in the revolution around them, and they, you know, are responsible for the space program and the Soviet Union, whatever mm -hmm. else we went critiques we might have of them. Uh, yeah, I just think they're pretty cool. <laughs> um, so I think that's a decent segue to. I, I actually wanted to read one of the, uh, well, a couple passages from the, Cos, um, cosmonaut, uh, magazine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cosmonaut. Um, and they're talking about uh, this is like the first half of the article. They're talking about uh, climate change. And um, so they say, like, if climate change is real and it is caused by our sinful desire, then that means I will be asked to give up my desire not uh, not to drive and not to eat meat and so on. And I ward this off by pretending that climate change does not exist. Um, and then later they say, so the problem is, like, no matter which side we take denial or abstinence. Climate change makes the future of desire impossible. Either we give up what we want in order to save the world or the world ends, in which case we can't get what we want either. And when desire becomes impossible, we are overwhelmed by sadness and cannot think. So um, they also compare like one of the main solutions, which is carbon credits, to indulgences, like the um, thing that the was it the Catholic Church was selling yeah. in medieval times. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and they get really into this metaphor where um you know climate change is caused by sin uh which i don't know how to pronounce this word is it theodicy yes okay yeah so they uh they call it theodicy or the problem of evil and so they go over these different ways uh that people respond to it and can and compare it to different um types of theodicy in the church which i think is really interesting um, so they say the conservative response is kind of a low church or Protestant response. It says the sacrifice of Christ means that we are in a state of grace. We have already been forgiven for our sins. So there's nothing to apologize for. And everything that happens is part of God's plan anyway. 
The mainstream liberal response is, by contrast, a high church or perhaps a Catholic response. It says, yes, we are always in danger of stepping into sin as a result of our desire at every moment, but this does not mean that you have to give up on your desire. All you have to do is make a sacrifice, and that's in the form of the indulgence. Um, the eco-socialist response, finally, is a Gnostic one. It says, in fact, the god of economic growth who made this world of capitalism is not a true god but a false evil one, not god at all but a mere demiurgos. And the only way out of a world which has been irredeemably corrupted by its worship is to renounce this false god entirely. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really liked all that. I thought that was very. I, I liked that up until the eco socialist part. So I, <laughs> I, I liked that up until the eco socialist part because that's tr I actually agree with that critique of liberalism and of indulgences and of thermal credits and whatever. Uh -huh. But the eco socialist response is not the notion that this world is fake. It would be more like the uh, I don't know the. Uh, like the, uh, uh, it's it's the iconoclastic response, which is like, uh, say it's not. There is like a more true God. It's like the destruction of gods as such, right? Or, uh, or if you would like, another one would be like uh, the Jewish view on it, which is that like it doesn't matter what your beliefs are. It just matters that you do right in the world, help other people and re reproduce your community and help to heal the world. And so in other words, who gives a shit what you believe in and what gods you, whatever, uh, if you, whatever, as long as you're like, you know, actively participating in, in healing and reproducing the world and spreading good among the world, uh, then right. So like, that's the eco-socialist response, at least. I mean, not that to say that there aren't hippy dippy whatever, but like, as the people I know don't, or eco-socialist, whatever the strain, even the milk toast social dem ones to the radical Marxist ones to the anarchist ones, very few of them actually think in this like false god that we need to re like this like sentimental, like hokey uh, spiritualist way. And I kind of interpreted it as like capitalism is a false god, as in like, uh, you know, capitalism shouldn't be running the state, socialism should, because capitalism is running it you know, improperly, or it's like pretending to be the, the rational way of organizing things, but we actually need a socialist state to do it according to, you know, the ecological outcomes. Well, that would be, that's like one, um, but, but that's like, that's like maybe one strand of eco-socialist, but you notice that that's exactly what the article proposes as the correct solution. That's true. <laughs> right. That that we need yeah. to seize seize the metrics of production, seize the account means of accounting or whatever, and replace them with new, better metrics of green accounting that the state can use or whatever. So, like, I, get, I think it's funny is that the article is kind of like a, it's a good critical article, but it's critical of the actual worldview, that, the worldview that it actually supports, <laughs> and then it has very little to do with what actual degrowthers and eco-socialists argue. Which is what I think was funny about that article, and what I think is just a little self-deprecating humor, you know. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't know. This is something I've noticed with critiques of ecological views all the time: is that the, the 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 critiques that people have of them have very little to do with what the people of those groups say. They have everything to do with like what that person's anxieties are, or like what their old their own old beliefs were. Like uh -huh. so, that, that's something I've noticed a lot. Like people will be like, "Oh yeah, well, the reason I don't support degrowth is that uh, I don't like austerity and." Uh, poverty and i think we need uh nuclear and da, 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 da. and it's just like what what do you know you're not and then or you read like lee phillips's critiques of degrowth and eco-socialism and they literally read like 
they're like child essays. They, they, they're, they're, they don't respond to anything these people actually say. They twist their words around, and then they like their big, their big bait and switch is that their solution at the end, uh, the one that is they the create, thing they were critiquing. <laughs> yes, or yeah, exactly. So like, uh, Lee Phillips would be like, "Oh, you shouldn't, we don't need this, this, and this. Instead, we need like this uh, focus on this, and we need uh, this kind of decoupling." And da 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 da. And it's just like, but degrowthers don't dispute that. They just dispute that you can get to it by. Um, building a fucking like I don't know a massive consumer society based around huge stocks of energy. You know, it's just like, and the subtle contradiction is like Lee Phillips says, uh, "Did you even read my piece? It is chock full of evidence of absolute decoupling and how degrowth would hurt the Western working class. It's your gang of postmodern humanities anti-realists desperate to attain slash maintain your academic sinecures." Who have no interest in evidence. Okay. Now, what's so funny about that is that I said it's like it's based on a false premise that degrowth aims to operate within the system whereby once wealth and development is determined by capital accumulation and GDP merely at a lower register, that seek degrowth to do away with. In other words, like there are it's presenting it degrowth is like it wants to keep GDP just have less of it, but actually it's like no, we need new ways of orienting our lives. The second point I was though is that you know Phillips is like Phillips loves to call people neo, the Deep Brothers neo Malthusians, but his his argument right there that he just made is literally a Malthusian argument, like a textbook <laughs> one. It's not I'm not it's like textbook because what it's positing is that the world is a zero sum game where the global South is the sacrifice zone to appease uh-huh. the West while also being so it's basically it's like look. If we want to maintain the Western working class's uh, consumption, I mean, self-based on a false premise, that's a shibboleth itself, but you could put that aside for now. Taking it at face value, the only way to maintain what he calls the Western what Western working class is, and its consumption is to, and while also being ecologically sustainable, is to literally sacrifice 80% of the world to the system and condemn them to poverty or death. So that, that Lee Phillips' argument, even with uh, nuclear power or whatever, so... Uh, because as Smil, even when Smil was pro nuclear power, he said that we still needed an absolute forty percent energy reduction, <laughs> borne by the global north. But uh, so, like his argument is literally Malthusian, uh, which is funny because that's in one of his big slanders against degrowthers. Uh, it's, it's just it's just so funny. Like that's what I've noticed invariably is people who make the Malthusian accusation tend to be Malthusian. It's like. Uh, like Bloomberg yeah. magazine, Bloomberg magazine loves to portray. Okay, so this um, a thousand, thirteen thousand scientists signed a petition that listed all these different things about how we needed to fight climate change. It's now a, a global emergency. The article they published, the open letter they published, had a section called population, right? But then you go to the section, and what does it say? We need to support women's rights, reproductive justice, and freedom and choice. Uh, and we need to have equitable based ways to redistribute gains to people in the global south so that development isn't unequal. We need to support families and children, da 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 right? That's uh, – we need to support all that stuff, right? Wow. What does Bloomberg take away from that? Because of their stupidly titled section population, which again, literally just proposed reproductive choice and freedom, uh, uh, support for children and, and parents, and uh, redistributing the equities and gains of the past to the world's poor. That's literally what that section uh, proposes, right? Mm-hmm. Bloomberg says, 13,000 scientists call for 
population control of the world. And then people on people on Twitter uh, go and they start uh, sharing this article, and they're like, "Wow, look at these ecofascists!" Okay, and I was like, Did "You read the article? They literally call her like reproductive justice and uh, global equality and social justice and women's rights and support for children and redistributing the gains from the global north and so on." They just happen to be liberal scientists who therefore still think in those terms. So they framed it in this population frame because if you don't look beyond, you know, if you take the state and capitalism for granted, that's how you're going to think. And so granted, mm -hmm. that's a problem. That's a problem for how they even titled it or framed it. But that's not uh, calling for population reduction or control. It is not eco-fashion. But then you go look through Bloomberg's history. You can find articles where Bloomberg itself is literally arguing, the Bloomberg magazine, arguing for population control. So and and so on. So it's like literally like they you they hold this editorial stance, which they then use to slander like scientists and ecologists who don't actually hold that stance in practice. So like the Economist does the same thing. Uh, the the right wing media does the same thing. You know, you'll, they'll say uh, they'll say, oh, these are eco fascists who want to kill everybody, and then they'll be like, oh, we can't allow more people in this country because of this, this, and this. Uh -huh. Right? I mean, so <laughs> like like this is. Like, uh, it's a reliable pattern. All these big liberal media outlets and conservative media outlets and think tanks, they call ecologists and whatever, Malthusian, neo-Malthusian, ranging from people who literally reject that style of thinking entirely, uh, people and to radicals who want to totally whatever, to um, people in, like, the middle who, like, have inherited that problematic framing but don't actually subscribe to it. And then to like, then then you have you know the misanthropic hippies and boomers and like people you know like when Jane Goodall said something really stupid about it, and then you have all the way to the actual uh, eco-fascists, but they call everyone like to the left of the eco-fascists the eco-fascists, and then not the actual uh, eco-fascists, right? So it's like uh, <laughs> that, uh, like include. I mean, it's not to say that some of these people aren't stupid or annoying like a lot i think misanthropic hippies who post we are the virus are stupid and annoying i don't doubt that. i don't dispute that like uh they are yeah i really like that um the part in that eco it's not eco-fascism article where they're talking about they're talking about the jane goodall thing and they say like it's fine to state the fact that like population affects the carrying like there's a carrying capacity to earth and population affects the amount of resources that we consume the problem is that you're saying it at a room full of dead-eyed psychos who are happy to sacrifice billions of people for their own well well-being. Right, and it's and it's also like carrying capacity only operates in like a theoretical. Uh, it's like a theoretical limit. It's not like um, like it's like uh, it's like were our resources equally to be distributed and we had exactly the same system and of the da 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 da, then this would be put X Y and Z strains on the system. Right, but yeah. like um. But nobody knows like, what the carrying capacity is, and it changes based on what we're doing. On like, uh, our behavior and so on, but also it's just like if we equitably distributed our resources fully, the impact would be substantially lower in the first place, right? So it's uh -huh. just like, and there's no way to equitably distribute resources without like abolishing the artificial scarcities and artificial abundances that cause like uh, these massive damages in the first place. Like, like uh, it's not like. You know, we can't just have capitalism, but with like everybody having an equal income, like, it's theoretically possible, but in practice, it's functionally impossible. You can't have a 
so any system which actually like and this is the problem though with people who make population arguments is that they 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 again the problem with the social democrats and so on is they take like part of the system as just like totally given and then the other part can be revolutionarily changed so it's like yeah this but the only way that you could achieve the kind of social justice and change is through the kind of fundamental social change that would render their concerns irrelevant in the first place. So that's like why that's the big contradiction of people who talk about population is that it's it's self invalidating as an argument. Uh, like anything they proposed from the fucking most like benign to the most evil proposals they could think of is going to be self contradictory, right? Like. Uh, there's no way to kill people that is ecologically sound, right? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> to, 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 put, to put it to put it as like bluntly as possible, every 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 war zone, every kill zone is an ecological disaster. Which yeah. is why why either, I mean, not that we need to have an argument that disproves ecofascism or whatever, but that is the heart of why it's a self-contradictory ideology because it literally doesn't work. There's no. There's no possible way to murder your way into sustainability. There's no possible possible way to starve people into sustainability. It doesn't work. It's a contradictory argument. It doesn't make sense. So it's like uh, that to me is the big problem with these people is like beyond their like murderous, uh, bloodthirsting, uh, like uh, psychopathy is they're also just very stupid and illogical. Like so, yeah. it's, uh, and then and this ranges from the most mundane to the most bloodthirsty people. Like. Uh, their worldview doesn't make any sense. Just as capitalism doesn't make any sense, its arguments are contradictory. Defenders' arguments are contradictory. So are these ones. Like, uh, like uh, there's no, uh, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's no plausible social system that could implement the changes needed for sustainability that could be based on that kind of human brutality and oppression. It just doesn't work. You can't oppress your way into sustainability. The two. The, the, the requirements of a system that oppresses people, kills people, and brutalizes people are, are, are an ecologically destructive system. So so you can't do that, right? Yeah, basically the I mean, same issue as what we talked about last time you were on with central planning. Right, and, the, and states in general. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's like, you know, I, uh, whatever, whatever, like, I'm not going to get into the big uh, Bookchin verse uh, <laughs> Marx or Bookchin verse anti-civ argument or whatever, but you know, the point where he talks about how, like, you know, the oppression of man on man is the sort of the oppression of nature, basically. Uh, that's sort of, I mean, that's kind of true. And Marx actually says something similar, too, which is really funny because Bookchin doesn't like Marx, but they actually have a very similar position on this. Yeah, didn't you find day. a bunch of, like, anti-civ sort of takes from Marx recently? I, he had a, he definitely had a, he definitely had a, I would, my, I think it's a, I would go so far to say, I say that there is a, uh, there. There is a formulation of it which is consistent with anti-supremacies, though not unique to it. Mm-hmm. But Marx himself would probably should, would is, is not anti-Semitic. I mean, that would be a historical anyway. But like uh, he, but he's definitely less of the Promethean uh, teleologist that people say he is. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, he definitely was an eco-socialist, if we can call that term sort of anachronistically an eco-socialist. He definitely was that, and he said the metabolic rift is like the problem of capitalism, because as long as, like, that's why people like, when they think that socialism is like the realization of the law of value rather than its abolition, it means they're fundamentally misreading Marx, because Marx says the law of value is the source of the metabolic rift, and the metabolic rift is the cause of capitalism, like the the biggest problem of capitalism. The only logical thing there is therefore to get rid of the 
metabolic rate, you have to get rid of a law of value. So that, that's a longer for another. We can, I'll say that on the Marxian podcast I do or whatever. But uh, but that's for another. <laughs> that's for another day. But anyway, yeah, anyway, I, this, I just did two uh, episodes about reading Capital, so we've we've had lots of Marx talk recently. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we'll just do it. It's like so. That's the problem with with the liberal, with the Malthusians, with the neo-Malthusians, however correctly or incorrectly used, with the misanthropes, with the hippies, with the liberals, with the capitalists, with Bloomberg, with the actual eco-fascists, is their worldview self-contradictory because the same processes that enable and allow the oppression and social control and murder and mass destruction of human life are the same ones that are the same thing that do that to ecological ones. So, like... Um, it doesn't hold both ways, right? So there are ways to like benefit humans at the expense of non-human nature, mm-hmm. but but like uh, so it's not symmetric. But uh, like there's no way to like help one without the other. Like if you want to stop the destruction of nature, you have to stop the oppression of human beings, right? So it's just yeah. that's what anyway. I, 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 I think there's I al- like if- also a more narrow point in there about, and this cuts across not only the citations needed podcast, but also the cosmonaut article and probably a lot of other stuff which is like the the idea that we need to you know use uh different accounting me- metrics like the the whole purpose of the accounting system that they're talking about is to create a class system through rationing so there, like there's no way for it to be good it, it's always going to be inherently a, a rationing system and like unless you use like uh what's it called time banking for everything it's always going to be a class system because the whole point of having money instead of like you know trading like hours of labor or whatever is so that some people can have more of it than others and so they can force other people to spend more hours doing something for them than they spend doing it themselves mm-hmm. right and uh yeah and any system that appropriates the surplus produced by a person physically and socially and temporally and allocates it to others, you know, beyond their discretion and control in an inequitable manner for the for, for the sake of accumulation will be, yeah, a class system. Um, yeah. But social democrats don't really want to get rid of the class system. They just want, like, right. a nicer one. Yeah. They want, like, a, they want, like, a class system. They want, like... Class system I mean, want, where the poor people have Netflix. Right, exactly. Or I mean... <laughs> Runic's vision of it is literally like a fit in the 1950s. It's just like it, every uh, person has a home and a job and a financial retirement account. Like that's that's their vision, right? Like literally. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that that's not around. They want a middle class, and the middle class is white people. <laughs> well, I mean, they would say it's for everybody, but I think we all know what their vision looks like. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, I mean, like, like the whole we can go back to the the uh, stove thing. Like if you want to move the pollution caused by gas stoves to power plants, guess what? They're where those power plants are built. <laughs> right, and the, but he would say, oh, but if we got rid of those to install this other kind of plant, you know, I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. Everything everything requires a further downstream change, and then one that if you're going to make it, you might as well just make it all the way. But yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess the last point I have, if we're talking about like what uh, what we should do, if we're talking about if we have the amount of power that we have to like change how metrics work, my suggestions 
uh, I've, I'm pretty sure I've said it before, but uh, number one, suspend all payments. Number two, void and destroy all property titles. And number three, void and destroy all debts. And uh, that'll take you pretty far. That would <laughs> a lot farther a than lot changing it. metrics. <laughs> that would reset a lot of it. But um, <laughs> there, there is one point. Okay, actually, one, thing, one concern that the podcast have that I have, I just don't think that they've thought it out fully. But, I mean, Jason Hickel is definitely – Jason Hickel's great. I think they're really good. I obviously, actually I haven't, actually haven't read their new book yet. I included it in the files. I, I intend to read it. But uh, – but I've read a lot of their other stuff. I really like them. I really like their Twitter presence. They're cool, whatever. But um, talking about this like point, which is that you know you can't have any worldview which depends on part of the world as a sacrifice zone, whether mm-hmm. that be the global south or marginalized groups within the global north or whatever, or workers or anybody, or women or you know you can't whatever. And the point is that I think that what we need to understand is that the concept of like who we don't like we shouldn't like that we shouldn't um, have sacrifice zones for certain classes of people. We deem expendable for the sake of sustainability is that we extend that just we extend we just extend that further. So now it includes um, animals and it includes the ecological systems themselves. So now it's like we're expanding our concept of like empathy and inclusion, such that we don't want to relegate humans of any kind to sacrifice zones for the purposes of appeasing capitalism, the state, growth, some notion of sustainability. But we don't want to do that to non-human nature, to animals, to anything else, right? So yeah. what that's like the point that's what I think people miss. And like whenever I see people get mad at like vegan arguments or whatever, like, oh, they care about uh, bees, but not care about workers or whatever, it just I don't get it because all the vegans are saying is that you need to expand the concept of like concern further rather than restrict it. So it's I think there is a valid point in there in that there are vegans that do care more about animals than poor people or black people but uh, it definitely doesn't apply to veganism as a whole uh, i mean if you're the point is that you're like there are a lot of uh, racist people and yeah. racist hippies, <laughs> hippies that's fine that's that's fine but like uh like the claims in general are weird especially because like the conditions of meat production are famously the worst most horrendous labor conditions of the entire agricultural system uh-huh. <laughs> like famously so they have like massive rates of like disease and ptsd and of violence and injury and uh like everything uh, yeah one thing i was wondering recently i didn't get any like very good answers on it but like it seems like the way that we slaughter animals is like the most brutal violent way possible yes. where we could like kill them in their sleep with like carbon monoxide or something if we're gonna kill them uh, i don't know if that would be uh i don't think that would uh i don't think you could eat it after that but uh, I don't know. That th- that was part of my question. Like, why why don't we just do that? <laughs> I I mean I, I I don't think there's any way to mass kill animals that's humane. But uh, true, <laughs> that's a longer conversation. I think and like this goes to the article though. The it's not ecofascism. It's liberalism, which is that the project of population control and social control by population control goes back to the heart of the liberal capitalist state and just like maybe states in general for, since since the last for, since forever. Yeah. And even in even in its social democratic forms, they care about this, which is why Denmark has ads on TV that say "Do it for your mother," and basically it's telling Danish teens to fuck because they need because they're racist, so they don't want to do open borders, right? But uh-huh. they need to have a constant. They need to have more people, or else their their welfare state and bureaucratic system is going to stop being able to fund itself. So, like, because they don't want to give up their racism. They have to try to encourage their kids to fuck, basically, and they can't. They can't even pay them to fuck. Neither can Japan, right? 
which is very funny in my own way. It's own way. But uh, <laughs> like uh, it's just basically like – and so even social democratic states care about population control. And there's all these uh, social dems, Jacobin types who are like, oh, we should subsidize this, this, and this. But it's like, no, you should provide um, uh, child, early child care and early childhood education and parental support and parental leave because it's the right thing to do, not because you want it, not because you want to control the population size. And so the social Dems themselves hold, want to control population. They just want to do it a different way, and they don't even realize it that social democracy, social democratic states, are just as invested in this liberal biopolitical project, which is why like the the they're calling everything ecofascist is uh, interesting because they themselves, a lot of social names hold like, strict Malthusian premises, even if they don't realize it. And it's actually kind of embarrassing, but uh, like this, yeah. And uh, like concerns for ecology and nature and animal welfare and rights and non-destruction of it is not a, saying we should care about these things at the expense of human life. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. It's to expand our concept of of this stuff to include all of this life and stuff and at least this system of which we're a part. It's a it's it's not like we have a limited empathy empathy budget or something or limited conceptual budget or whatever. So it's just like uh, that's what's been so so weird to me is that like recognitions of the impacts that we have on the world, on ecologies, on energy, on the climate, on the biosphere, on geological scale things on on animals and whether or not we want to call these the you know the product of states and capitalism what however we want to frame that like it's not a rec- it's not to say oh we should uh, kill everybody in the world it's to say wait a minute what if we stop killing humans and stop killing ecology and, <laughs> yeah and, and, and it's just uh, bizarre to me that that i but that's why it makes me think that a lot of this stuff is very bad faith because i think a lot of people don't want to recognize that their worldview itself requires the very sacrifice zones of which they're accusing others. And tying that into this sort of GDP and growth is taught is the people who like say we want like socialism, but with just better growth and better GDP, more equally distributed. What they're not admitting is that that worldview requires a sacrifice zone of some kind, somewhere down the line, the, the, the slack has to come from somewhere. So when they are call everything ecological like eco-fascist. It's my hypothesis that they're doing so to avoid the fact that it's actually their worldview that requires the mass death and not the eco-socialist one. Um, so since you mentioned uh, declining birth rates, I just thought of this not completely unplanned, but uh, I won't be getting to this anime. So I just want to talk about it real quick right now. Uh, this was a potential show to go into the Mecha Madness miniseries, Darling in the Franks. Is a show that is all about declining birth rates. So they, the, the story is that uh, there are these monsters called Klaxosaurs that are wiping out human, the human population. And the only way to fight them is for men and women to partner uh, to pilot these giant robots, and the way they pilot them, it looks like they're uh, doing like doggy style, fucking each other. Um, and so, like the the women connect to the giant robots, they get on all fours, and like the controls for the robots come out of their ass, 
and uh then the men control the you know the handles and they kill the claxosaurs and uh they live in a society where like most of the world has been uh like the ecosystems have been wiped out um the claxosaurs are and they end up being a result of their energy system uh which is like I think it was magma energy or something like that. So the magma energy like goes deep into the earth and uh, like fucks Awakens with everything. Giant monster. Yeah, it creates giant monsters. Hey, when that happens. And the giant monsters try to kill all humans. And uh, yeah, it pretty pretty interesting uh, premise for a show. Apparently, though, like I, I don't think the creators intended for it to be that metaphorical uh but i mean it's it's hard to argue that that's not what it's about <laughs> because well, I mean, I, it fits I so perfectly i wouldn't be surprised if the japanese government fund is funding that yeah <laughs> because, because because the japanese government literally has massive campaigns to try to get kids to reproduce have kids but they don't yeah. want to oh and the, another the another big plot point was that the uh the people were not horny at all like they don't they don't know what sex is and uh, they're not allowed to have sex. There's also like a, a class like system. My last yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a class system where the the pilots are like part of the lower class and they're fighting to maintain this upper class that they never really see or interact with, who just live in profligate luxury and uh, are immortal. And uh, yeah, pretty uh, pretty perfect fit for <laughs> the like good metaphor for reality. Um, and it, one of the funniest things though, too, is like, if you look at the reviews for the show, n not one fucking person, uh, understands that that's what it's about. They're like, I don't get this show. It's weird. Like, why do they pilot the robots like that? It's just totally meaningless. Like, <laughs> it's just yeah, stupid. I think, I think that's like the, it's like the problem with American reviews of these kinds of things all the time. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's just like. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that when people watch American TV and cartoons, there's a lot of stuff in it that's just completely obscure to uh -huh. anybody else who isn't infected by American brainworms. But, uh, <laughs> right, like, uh, I don't know. Even there's like Kotaku, the, the reviewer says, uh, for most of the shows, like, uh, Darling doesn't shy from symbolism, such as the pistol stamen relationships connection to sexuality and identity. For most of the show's run, it seemed that symbolism would eventually come to fruition in service of some greater meaning. Instead, it just seems interested in escalating and closing the new conflict while threads like Ikuno get left in the dust. So they, like, even the person who gets paid to write articles about anime, like, didn't pick up on the declining birth rates thing. What is the show from? Uh, it's called Darling in the Franks. No, no, when's it from? Oh, when? Uh, 2012, I think. Let's see. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, it's called Darling in the Franks? Yeah. Oh, 2018, actually. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it has some uh, Japanese cultural, uh, in, 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 uh, like, like a department subsidy or something. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that since I wouldn't be able to get to it in a full episode. Yeah, I want. I mean, but yeah, like, uh, so yeah, it's just yeah. Anyway, the point of that, my side on that though, is just that <laughs> social democrats and Japan, to you know, all these states that are are held up as you know having things like paid family leave and someone like whatever their their aim is to save us the liberal project of social control via population control and it's actually the eco-socialists who reject that that's the only point i wanted to make about that and uh degrowthers too degrowthers are not concerned with controlling 
population and social controls your population. They're they don't want giant robots that are funded by, uh, <laughs> piloted by by uh, by do- by having uh, by like horny doggy style. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's. I mean, I mean, maybe some in the '60s wanted that, but uh, I think uh, I think uh, the modern view is that you know, piloting mechs should be done with uh, uh, genetically modified angel beings rather than uh, <laughs> rather than uh, partnering uh, them up in a sexual uh, 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 intercourse. But uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or at least, uh, or at least, uh, 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 you know, uh, brains in a vat that require a, uh, a neural interlink to a living being to uh, functionally operate, but otherwise have to be kept in pristine conditions in giant vats of uh, fluid. Well, you got to be careful with the genetically engineered brain in a vat thing because mm-hmm. it can quickly escalate into genetically engineered sex slaves that also control robots. Which is oh, yeah. uh, oh, yes, from yes, five yes, star yes, stories. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, that's a concern for sure. I think uh, you know, in the in the uh, genetically modified brain mech literature, they discuss about the uh, that issue all the time. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, lot lot of, lot of debates about that, but uh, uh, society yeah. ends up re- revolving around it, and you have you know like a sort of uh, Sharia law sort of thing where they have they have to be covered when they're outside, that kind of thing. You know, I don't know if that's the word for it, but. I mean, yeah, mod- I mean, modesty laws are common. To modesty a lot. laws. There you go. <laughs> yeah, modesty laws are common to a lot of different uh, religions and societies. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, I think like yeah, and it's like uh, that because that's where. Let's see. I mean, we talked about what we talked about GDP well-being. We talked about the they're not necessarily being a connection between well, just the GDP and distribution and health. Uh, we talked about the grower die intrinsic logic. We talked about. The I think the cost of growth is kind of implied ecosystems. Um, this, we talked about how the global north needs to be less sacrificed rather than the global south. Uh, oh, we didn't, well, we didn't talk about Liz Warren's green militarism being silly, but whatever. Uh, we know that. Yeah. And then the correction of the hundred companies. So I think that was like all of it. Like, uh, more, yeah. more or less. I think there my, actually, my- I did find one more point that I could make, which is um, like besides the other objections that we have to GDP, uh like focusing on gdp um another thing is that like gdp could totally just go up without anything actually changing if prices and wages just rise at the same rate uh by fiat or what have you uh then gdp would go up without anything actually changing at all (laughs) nominal gdp nominal gdp but then that's where the deflator comes in right and then that's the uh and then how they deflate it depends on certain um variables but one another way that you know GDP can go up without anything changing is if like something which previously was done outside of the market is now done in the market. So the big example I brought up earlier over the last hundred years is care labor and reproductive labor, uh-huh. basically what, what they used to call women's work, household labor, like uh, that has programming become, computers, that oh, sort of oh, thing. That too, that too. <laughs> but I'm talking about you know elderly and childcare, that kind of thing, um, home care aids, uh, you know, these teaching. Kind of to an agree out a little bit earlier than that, but yeah, yeah. And so those things are those things are marketized, even though the service is either the same or even declining in quality when it gets yeah. marketized. But GDP will go up as a result of that. Um, yeah, that's an example where nothing changes or changes for the negative, all GDP goes up, um, and so on. I think right, and that's why they have all these different metrics of green GDP and a multidimensional GDP and all these other things, which 
have a slightly stronger correlation of outcomes we care about, pollution, poverty, whatever. Uh, but they either do so because they're cooked to do so that way or, you know, so it's just, it's just like, uh, it's replacing one high, highly noisy, uh, shot in the dark with another little bit less one, little bit less noisy shot in the dark, a little bit more specific one. But at the end of the day, the problem still remains that you're reducing the entire welfare of society and its metrics and its aims to an aggregated set of, uh, deflated, uh, metrics that homogenize across Everything, the only way we can homogenize across everything is if you have some sort of monetary system and or some other metric system to do so uh, because you can't actually really do it with utility or a few other things because for many, many reasons. Yeah. Um, We've covered so, a lot of those reasons yeah. on here before. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and you can do it with labor, right? But that wouldn't tell you about what the labor is actually producing. So that's why you get into this other stuff. So that's why, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's sort of the intrinsic problem with, GDP and those kinds of metrics. Um, also, I wanted to, I like this point because it's just, as it relates to above stuff we talked about, but just the thing, the, the thing that Hickel said about how the global South contributes 60% of the world's labor and energy, but only receives 5% of its wealth. And yeah. I think that's an important point. And like, I think another suspicion I have as to the opposition to degrowth is the, some is the, is the, um, the one that, uh, that Lee Phillips made is basically like that there's a certain lifestyle people in the global North like to live and they feel like it'll be threatened by this, um, by degrowth. And that concern, I mean, we can talk about how justified it is empirically speaking. Uh, but the subtle flip side of that though, is that, uh, like that maintaining a certain lifestyle is worth the cost of human life and labor elsewhere. Um, and I mean, like the conservatives, you know, conservative psychopath types, they just admit that that's just, they just say that, that that's what they want. Um, but you know, for the like social Dems and stuff to say it like requires they, I mean, they'll go and the liberal for liberals and the social Dems to say it, they'll jump through hoops to avoid saying, it. yeah. And one of, and one of the hoops and one of the hoops that they have to jump through is basically they have to dismiss these ecological critiques and, they do that through any number of ways, but basically, like most of the critiques I've seen of degrowth, of eco-socialism, of green Marxism, of all these other things, they don't actually respond, as I said at the beginning, to any of the substance of what any of these people say. It's not the degrowthers and the eco-socialists and the eco-Marxists and the whatever who are trying to control human population. It's the liberals and the conservatives and the state and the socialists, and uh, it's not um, it's not the eco-socialists and the degrowthers who want to. Uh, like have austerity or sacrifice zones or uh, to prioritize ecological and animal life over human life. That's what, uh, that's like, they wanted to get rid of that system entirely that even makes us do those choices in the first place. Like, uh, exactly. And so I really wish that people understood that. Um, and I think, you know, Hickel talks about that kind of stuff on their uh, uh, his Twitter and, and on the podcast. That, that is one issue, and then the other issue is I don't like um, the way that the solution of, say, the Cosman article and of the podcast citations needed to, like, GDP was not, like, we need to get rid of these societies based on aggregating measures and social control and decisions for other people and the, the welfare choices of select group of bureaucrats. Uh, we, we need to replace them with a better one. 
That's what yeah. the Cosmic article proposes. That's what the citations need to propose. But the whole point is, no, we should stop doing that at all in the first place, right? Like, I don't want to substitute my social welfare function for other people's. I would like it if everybody had healthcare or education, right? That's not the point. That's not the point. We're not saying we don't want those things. Well, what we are saying is that when we frame it in, or what I'd say at least, is when you frame it in this term of like, this is what they need and I'm going to provision it for them or whatever. They're going to end up measuring everything based on calories and literacy rates. Right. And, and, and hours worked and whatever. Yeah. And you get, so they're just going to introduce a new, uh, obfuscatory aggregative social control metric. And it's just like, why do you want to replace? I don't, I don't want to just replace one, uh, one toxic social control message metric with like a slightly more benign one. I want the society where that's not even a thing in the first place. And I don't think that they just, I don't think there's this understanding of that. Like there's so many things that people think are sort of like the abolition of capitalism, but are just, it's uh, forms in a new way. So it's just like, uh, if you hate, if you hate capitalism and not the state, you just hate being rational. Or, <laughs> or, or I think, I think it's but the people who are like that. It's like, they more like, uh, they hate like, well, I don't want to say this again. I'm not going to get canceled. But uh, uh, I, I, I did a. I, I'll say it one more like a recording about that. But uh, uh, I think there is something that they, that type of person doesn't like. But that's for another day. <laughs> so uh, I guess in conclusion, uh, what if instead of gross domestic product, it's gross domestic product, and it measures the number of garbage pail kids that you produce? Well, that's why I say gross capital <laughs> formation. You mean like a booger factory? <laughs> there we go. All right. Young Neocon, thank you for uh, coming on here. Always great to have you. Make sure you edit me so I, I sound don't say anything problematic and everything I say is good. I'm going to take the problematic <laughs> things that you said and put it right at the intro for the first 10 minutes and uh, then oh, no. the rest of the show after that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, please rate us on iTunes after this episode because you're going to love it and uh, you'll want to give us five stars. Uh, thank you. Bye. All right.